This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about the law and how it affects you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Think of me as your personal law professor as we navigate the big legal questions of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. Hey, everybody. The presidential election is heating up. Super Tuesday is in about a month, and I think it's time to talk presidential politics. And I can think of no one better to have this conversation with than my friend and colleague, Professor Michael Genovese. Professor Genovese is the Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Loyola Marymount University. He's president of the Global Policy Institute at LMU. He's Loyola Chair of Leadership Studies. He's director of the Institute for Leadership Studies. He has also written over 50, you heard that right, 50 books, including How Trump Governs, The Trumping of American Politics, Leadership Matters, The Paradoxes of the American Presidency, The Encyclopedia of the American Presidency, and Memo to a New President, The Art and Science of Presidential Leadership. You can often see Professor Genovese on television and read his op-ed columns. I'm so pleased that he's with us today. With that, Professor Michael Genovese, my dear friend, thank you for joining us again on Passing Judgment. And you are, as we were just talking about, one of the nation's experts on the presidency. The listeners have just heard about all of the books you've written, about all of the experiences that you've had. And we were talking right before we started recording, and I said, what are you thinking about the election? And you said, I feel depressed about it. And I think that's probably how a lot of people are feeling right now. Can you talk to us about here at the end of January in 2024, why do you feel that way? Yeah, it, it's uncharacteristic of me um, because I, I really am a, a glass half full kind of guy, even in, in the down periods. This really has gotten to me, this election, uh, the inevitability of two dinosaurs running for president, both of whom are past it, both of whom are looking really more towards the past, I think, especially Donald Trump, um, and, and neither of whom is, I think, of a stature to go into the next term. I, I am concerned about Biden's age, as, as most people are. But I'm even more concerned about Donald Trump's authoritarian tendencies and his kind of gloves off. You know, I, I learned in the first term what's how to, how to do it. I messed up badly. But now I've got the people and I know what to do. And now is my turn. I fear that he actually means that. I think he does. But I also fear that unlike the first term where he was so I don't want to say incompetent, but he fumbled the bolts so often that this time around, he's not going to have people who will stop him. He's not going to have people who will caution him. He's going to have people who open doors for him. And doors to his his instincts are frightening to me. Not not just you know the misogynistic, the authoritarian, the angry uh, model that he, he presents, uh, the, the hurtfulness. It, it really frightens me for my country. And I, I jokingly say to my friends, thank God I'm old. I don't want to see this. Well, I think I speak for everyone when I say now we understand why you're depressed and we feel that way as well. I noticed in your answer, you did not actually speak about any typical policies. 
that we usually discuss when we're talking about two different presidential candidates. And it does seem to me that that's not part of the conversation right now. I didn't hear you talk about Biden's ability to achieve legislative goals or Trump's so-called conservatism. Do you think that the presidential election will largely be dominated not by the substance of any particular policy, but by the feeling that Biden's too old, but at least he's not a misogynistic authoritarian. Sadly, I think that's where we are, and that's likely where we will be, because Donald Trump will force us in that direction. Uh, Donald Trump is a magnet for television. He is an entertainer-in-chief. He is interesting. He's fascinating. He is the train wreck or the car wreck that you know you're not supposed to stare at, but you can't help yourself. And so he will dominate the airwaves. And this is going to be about policy. Trump can't run on policy. For example, he can't run on the economy unless he lies about it. He'll run on immigration, but only because he's right now in the process of demanding that Republicans in the Senate don't make a a deal with Democrats on immigration, which they could be making right now. So he wants that is probably one of his few issues. But I I think to me, it, it, it echoes something that Neil Postman, the late author who wrote a great book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's a 1985 book in which he warns us that democracy is becoming entertainment and spectacle is going to be more important than substance and personality and style. And that what we really want to do is we want to be entertained. We look at tele- we look at, at politics now like a television program and see what's on this week. Oh, last week we were left with a cliffhanger. Now what are we going to do this week? And Donald Trump is a master of that. He is unbelievably entertaining. I, who am, am repelled by him, still can't stop watching him. He, he, he is that magnet. He has a kind of charisma that can be dangerous. And my, my fear is that Americans have become jaded. Uh, we've become more uh, susceptible to entertainment. That's going to get even worse in the future as AI and, and, and deep fakes become more, more important. But as of now, it's the Donald Trump personality that we just can't stop looking at. And so why would we talk about policies? They're boring. Let's talk about something interesting, the latest Donald Trump catastrophe. So whose fault is that? I mean, is it the media for feeding us Donald Trump? Is it us for demanding that they feed us Donald Trump? Is it a combination of those things? And I want to get to this question a variety of different ways, but my overall question, I think that of many of our friends is, how are we here again? How are we here with a president facing a number of serious criminal indictments, who is twice impeached, who, in my view, has no regard for the rule of law? How are we back here? And I think you gave us a really good explanation of our desire for entertainment. What could we or should we do to try and change that? I mean, you've admitted it, and many brilliant people have. It's hard to look away. Well, you know, you started the question with, uh, you know, is, whose fault is it? Is is it the media's fault? The media wouldn't give it to us if we weren't buying it. Uh, one one of the things that we have to remember is, you know, people say, oh, the media is biased to the left or it's biased to the right. It's biased towards the market. And when the market says, ease up on a president, ease up. When Donald, when, when George W. Bush was at uh, post-11 at 80%, everybody eased up. So the, the media will follow what the public wants. That's simply the name of the game. And I don't want to blame the media for that, but but they will keep giving it to us as long as we keep buying it. The way to stop it is to stop buying it. 
to simply turn that off when you see Donald Trump say outrageous things about women, um, making fun of the way Nikki Haley dresses. We don't do that with men. We do that. We can do that with a woman. So that kind of misogynistic stuff. You simply say stop. And if if you're willing to to stand behind it, I used to have a rule that said that in any race, the first campaign commercial that I saw was really ugly, down and dirty. I had to vote against that person, Democrat or Republican. It didn't matter. If we adopted such a, as a policy, we wouldn't have those kind of ugly things that you keep hearing and seeing. The things that turn us off to politics. And so, you know, Donald Trump gets a free pass on that. We give him a free pass because we, we enjoy him so much. So that's our fault. It's our fault. We, we could change it if we wanted to. How could we? I mean, it seems to me that based on how we consume news and how we consume information, period, that our attention spans are decreasing, that we want a president who, quote, looks like a president, sounds like a president, and maybe we don't peel back the onion fully to see what they're actually doing. Now, obviously, a lot of people do. But is this a situation where we need more education, more self-control? I mean, how can we, if we are controlling what the media feeds us, then how can we say we've got to look away? You'll know that as a college professor, I will, of course, say we need more education. We need that all the time for everything. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's a function of living in a very polarized world where, you know, effective polarization is high. Trust in government and the media are low. Uh, partisanship shapes our news attention, what we watch. Um, and so we, we're, we, we, we spend time in different universes. And I can understand that. You want to be comforted. You want to be told that everything's okay and that your guy is the one. And I don't want to say that we, I, used, I grew up in the glory days, the golden years when there were only three networks. That was not that great either. Uh, but at least when you had the three major networks, and you watched the news every night because that's all you got was the evening news. It gave us a common language and a common set of subjects. Today, I would bet that Republicans do not know that Donald Trump is sabotaging a deal at the border. I would bet that they're all because if you watch Fox News or the other conservative you know, uh, outlets, they're not going to say that. Um, and you don't have to watch MSNBC on the left to, 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 to get the truth. We should have a wide variety of, of sources, but I think we are so, in part, it's lazy. We want to be told what to think. Uh, thinking is hard. John Kennedy once said, I, we, we all want to have the comfort of conclusion without the hard work of thinking. We're a society that wants it now, wants it immediately, wants it cheaply and easily. And so we refuse to do the hard work. That's true in our lives. It's true in our politics. It's absolutely true that the junk food is easier. And obviously, I'm not pointing the finger at everybody, but there is some reason that we're here. We're here in a place where, and this is my next question, but I think you've already answered it. We're here in a place where the former president, who, in my view, uh, gave aid or comfort to those who engage in an insurrection in an attempt to unconstitutionally hold on to power is now the presumptive nominee. Is there anything stopping him from getting the nomination in your view? Is Nikki Haley a real impediment or is this a fait accompli? Is this over? It's going to be Biden versus Trump again. Uh, I, I think it is probably over. Uh, um, Nikki Haley started to criticize this week, too little, too late, but she was like all, almost all the other Republicans, scared to death, scared of, of 
being in a Donald Trump gunshot site, is afraid that, that he'll tear you apart, afraid that he'll criticize you. I've been so disappointed, except for a few Republicans, you know, like the, the Liz Cheney's, who have been so spineless. Uh, I just can't believe that they would cave in morally to what Donald Trump is demanding. And they do, they do it seemingly so easily. He's, he's a master of, of shock jock kind of criticism and it works. But I, but I, I, I do think that you know, the numbers just don't suggest that Nikki Haley has any great option. My only thing that I would think about uh, Haley staying in the race is because if in fact Donald Trump does continue to have court decisions against him. Maybe someday some of the Republicans will go, we can't do this. We just can't face up to this. It's too much. I mean, he's already been, been convicted of fraud in the uh, Trump University case. He's been convicted of fraud in the New York financial case that they're, they're dealing with right now, the, the penalties phase. He's been found uh, that he, he's assault, sexually assaulted a woman, that he has done it and has to pay a fine for verbal abuse of the woman he uh, victimized uh, now a second time. At what point do Republicans say, I just can't do it anymore. I can't support it anymore. I mean, he was he was my guy, but I, that's a bridge too far. I won't go any further. And I keep waiting for that to happen. I keep waiting for Republicans to wake up morally and say, I can't do this. I won't do this anymore. To the extent that they let it happen, I don't want to blame them, but I wanted to say, you can say stop. You can pull away. You can say, I'm not voting for that person. I wish that they'd do that. And it's, it's not because I like Biden, although I think he's done an okay job. Um, I'm not a big fan right now. Uh, it's, it's really more that rather than pro-Biden, you really need to stop Trump, what Trump represents, what he's doing. That's the thing that is very difficult for me to wrap my mind around. I certainly, in my in my mind, I respect those who have differing policy views. Um, I welcome debate. I think that my personal views are probably different than those who maybe see me on TV in the sense that they're probably more moderate. But I can't wrap my head around the idea that there is institutional support for the former president. And instead of us again trying to ask why that's the case, I'm wondering if you can address, do you think that the Democratic Party would be as susceptible if there was a Democratic version of Trump would the Democrats similarly kind of hold their nose, look away, and say, okay, he's very popular, so he's our guy? Or is there something different about the organization and our philosophy of the Democratic Party where you think it just couldn't happen there? No, I think that's a great question, and I have a very sad answer, which is that all organizations, when threatened, circle the wagons. Whenever you're threatened, you see the other, the outsider, as a threat, and you circle the wagons and protect your team. We think very tribally, and I understand that anthropologically that makes sense because there was a time when being tribal meant increased safety. Um, and so maybe it's part of our evolutionary development and maybe it's part of our DNA now, I don't know, but we think tribally. Membership, I'm a member of X. All organizations suffer from that kind of a dilemma, and that is that rather than putting the mirror on themselves, we break the mirror and we, we, we circle the wagons. The Democrats did that with Bill Clinton. I remember uh, the day, I think it was the day after the Monica Lewinsky affair was front page news. And of, for, of all things, I was on Fox News that day. And uh, the interviewer asked me a question. And I said, you know, if I did that, 
not only would I be fired tomorrow, I should be fired tomorrow. And while you don't just fire a president, you simply say you have to resign. And Democrats have to say that. And Democrats really didn't. I mean, there were, there were some, I will grant you that. But, you know, you know and, and all the Republicans who tore into Bill Clinton for being immoral. Then a few years later, when Arnold Schwarzenegger came on the scene, and he was the Republican, and he was accused of the same kinds of things. It was like, oh, that's just the media going after him, and my guy's okay. And, and then Donald Trump came along and said, blew the lid off that. There's no way that you can say, oh, no, that's just the media. No, it's Donald Trump. And so the only th explanation that makes any sense is the tribal explanation, my tribe. And that's kind of humiliating when you think of the things that you're willing to do to defend your tribe. Michael, I just want to pick up on something you said. My understanding is that your answer is saying that Democrats would do the same thing, but not that the type of behavior that Bill Clinton engaged in is the same as the behavior that Donald Trump engaged in as president. Is that an accurate clarification or understanding of your statement? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you gave me that opportunity. Yeah, what, what, what Clinton did was, was disgraceful. What Donald Trump did was disgraceful times 50. Uh, what Donald Trump did, there is no way to make excuses for him. There is no, there is no longer a defense for him. Uh, and I tell people, well, but you know, um, he did this and that for he. The evangelicals say, yeah, well, he gave us the Supreme Court and stopped abortion. He did. And the business says, well, you know, he gave us tax cuts and deregulation. He did. But he also lowered our moral standards to ourselves and the world to such an extent, to such a degree that he's humiliating himself and our nation. For obvious reasons, I think we could spend our entire time talking about Trump, but there's something you said that I thought was so interesting, which is that you don't really think Biden is doing a great job. And I'm so curious as to what your reasons are for that statement. Yeah, if, if I said he's not doing, if I'm criticizing him for the job he's doing, let me pull it back a little bit. I think he's done a better job than I expected. And given the circumstances, because there are always constraints on a president, he's achieved more than I expected. But having said that, he's old. He is not as spry as he was. He's not as active as he was. And I just feel that he would have been, if he had just been a one-term president and said, that's it, I wanted to clean up the Aegean stables left behind by Donald Trump, I've done it. Now I leave it to the future, to a younger generation, a new generation, a more energetic generation. Uh, he would have gone down in history as being one of the top 15 presidents. What he's done now is he's given Donald Trump the opportunity to become president again. Uh, and I really do think that that he made a fundamental error. Politicians do that. Their egos can run wild. And so while I thought, I think Biden has done a credible job, at least probably a pretty good job, and has gotten more out of his opportunities than most politicians in similar circumstances to so give him credit. But but if he loses to Donald Trump and Donald Trump becomes president, I think that history is going to be very harsh on him. It must be so difficult to give up power because I agree with you. I think it would be seen as this incredibly selfless act. And do you think part of it is that he doesn't want to, this is a job he's wanted his entire life and he can't get of it up? Or do you think part of it is he doesn't think there's a bench? I mean, who do you see on the horizon in the Democratic Party who you think they would be a viable nominee? Um, before I answer that, let me hit to the first part of your, your question, which is, you know, giving up power is very hard. It is. 
One of the reasons why George Washington is considered one of the great presidents is because he willingly gave up power when he could have, number one, been king right after the revolution, and two, a three, four, maybe a five-term president. He was willing to give up power. And when the king of France heard that, that Washington was willingly giving up power, he supposedly said, that blank, he's ruining it for the rest of us, meaning the whole definition of greatness was going to be different from that moment on. It wasn't accumulating and using power. It was using power and then giving it up. Uh, Washington formed the Club of Cincinnatus. Cincinnatus was the uh, Roman senator and general who, there's a famous painting, Cincinnatus at the Plow, where the Roman Senate leaders came up to him with the sword and they said, the Roman constitution allows for the, a temporary dictatorship. And they said, here's the sword. The barbarians are at the gate. You're the greatest person to do, deal with this. Deal with it. And then when you come back, we'll go back to normal. And the second painting is Cincinnatus at the Plow, where he's returning the sword. George Washington formed the Club of Cincinnatus because he wanted his cadre of lieutenants and officers to remember that they served. They served the country. The country didn't serve them. What a revolutionary thing to think. That government was not the master of you. You were the master of government. All you did was serve. Um, and so giving up power, difficult as it is, is a measure of greatness that Joe Biden missed the opportunity of. The second thing you asked me was about the, the bench. Whoops, uh, we've got a problem there. Uh, the Democrats do have a bench. It's, it's maybe a, a little bit raw. Uh, some people say uh, Kamala Harris. I'm not sure that she's the, the Democrats' favorite. Uh, but there are people like maybe Governor Newsom, maybe Pete Buttigieg, maybe uh, uh, Klobuchar. Maybe there's a few governors out there that I think, you know, uh, Governor Bashir of Kentucky would be my pick. There are a couple of cabinet officials, Secretary of Commerce and a few others. So one of the things that modern communications does is it allows you to develop in front of the American public if you're a little bit unknown and a little bit raw. So I think that there's a bench out there, but there's no sort of favorite person that the Democrats would jump behind. I think had there been, it might have been easier for Biden to make a, a, the right decision. But, you know, every politician thinks that they're the greatest and the, the greatest things in sliced bread and the world can't live without them. And so Biden, Biden, Biden made a fundamental error. Uh, where was his wife in this? Where, were his, where is his family? Where are his good friends who simply sort of said, Joe, you can't do this? Um, they seem to be absent. Or if they were not absent, he, maybe he didn't listen to them. Or maybe they were saying, go for it. But I think that was a fundamental mistake. I, I lied because I said we're done with Trump, but you brought up the willingness to give up power as one of the measures of greatness. And there's a lingering question that I keep thinking about in the middle of the night, which is if Trump wins, and I think at this point, my view is it's a coin toss. I'm going to defer to you on that. But if he wins, do we continue to have elections like we've become accustomed to? Does he leave voluntarily? Or does he really at that point stay because he saw what didn't work on January 6, 2021, and he has a long time to think about what could work instead? Yeah, I, I, th I think Donald Trump is almost the polar opposite of George Washington. Donald Trump would not give up power, even when he so clearly lost. There is no mistake. It's not fraud. It's not fixed. It's not rigged. 
it's all in Donald Trump's head, not because he believes that he lost, but because he believes that he can't lose and still maintain his sense of self. Uh, Donald Trump is not a man in that sense. He could not accept reality. He had to, f- to fake reality and cause terrible violence. So where, whereas Washington willingly gave up power, Donald Trump did everything he could and more to cling to power. And what would that say if he won, actually won the next uh, presidential election? Four years from now, would he say, two-term limit, I'm up, thank you so much, and great serving? Or will he say the same thing Putin said, which was, hey, let's change the Constitution. Uh, I want to run again. And uh, and he did it. Putin did it. And that's what authoritarians do. I have no doubt that if Donald Trump won a second term, he would somehow find a way to at least make the, the effort to run a for a third term, uh, no matter what the Constitution says, because the rule of law seems never to have gotten in his way. He famously said, I have an Article 2, meaning Article 2 of the Constitution, the executive article. I have a, an Article 2, and that means I can do anything I want. It absolutely doesn't. Uh, my f- freshman students know that it doesn't. My freshman students know that we have a separation of powers, checks and balances. It is a, a government of three branches, not one. Donald Trump doesn't either know it or see it. And so I think his ego is so large and he so needs to be seen as this great thing that he puffs himself up so much that he, he I don't I don't know that like most you know authoritarians, I don't think he would, would, would willingly give up power. He certainly didn't after he lost. Why would we think he'd do it again? Michael, we've already gone over the amount of time I asked you for. And I think this is obvious that I just love talking to you and learning from you. And I don't want to overstay our welcome here. So I want to end with this question, which is, you've written about the presidency, which obviously is a leadership position. And if you could design not the perfect president, but a great president, and I think we've talked about this a little bit, and then I'm so glad that you brought up George Washington and talked to us a little bit about what we used to have. What are the key qualities that you would like to see a president have? To answer that, I say go back to the great presidents and who they were and what they did. I talked about Washington. My favorite president is Abraham Lincoln. And while he did uh, defy the rule of law during the Civil War, he never said he was above the law. And once the Congress was back in session, he said to them, I've done these things out of necessity. You need to approve them. Otherwise, I have to stop. So he believed in the rule of law, but he also believed in getting it done. You know, he's kind of my ideal. I, I read, gosh, everything I think there is about him. And he was a man who was in touch with the deeper elements of his humanity. Uh, some of us would say he was in touch with his female side as well as his masculine side. He was the most empathetic president we've had. Uh, in my leadership class, I tell students there, the most important quality a leader can have is good judgment. The second is empathy. He had that. He had that in spades. Washington had a bit of that. Franklin Roosevelt had a lot of that. Presidents who succeeded had those two qualities, good judgment and empathy. Good judgment because you it's a position of decision-making, and empathy because empathy is the quality, the human quality that opens the door for all other good human qualities. Uh, and so I tell my students that you know presidents need to be good with judgment and empathy. You as a person need to be empathetic first and then have good judgment. So I, I would look to, to those three and say, what are the qualities that they had? Everything they did, and this distinguishes them from Donald Trump, was about the people, doing something for the good of the country, of the people, not for themselves, not for their egos, not even for their place in history. 
they always kept their eye on the prize. The prize for George Washington was, how do you create a Republican small r presidency? How do you create a rule of law presidency? The goal for Lincoln was, how do you not only win the Civil War, but come out of it and transform the way people thought so they thought about the rights and the responsibilities and the idealism of the Declaration? For FDR, it was, how do you take people out of misery? And then, how do you stop fascism? I'd, I'd say look to those three, and that's your answer. Professor Michael Genovese, professor of political science and international relations, president of the Global Policy Institute at LMU, Loyola Chair of the Leadership Studies, and director of the Institute for Leadership Studies. I've loved this conversation. I hope you'll come back again. Thank you so much for all of your time. Always my pleasure to be with you. 